You know, uh, the great thing about the COVID vaccines is that experts seem to be telling us that they are safe, but then they also tell us that they aren't safe. Some of the experts tell us that vaccines must be distributed according to race-based priority lists. Have you heard about that? And then there are all the public policy experts at America's largest corporations who tell us what our political opinions should be on all the hottest topics of the day. So we're going to talk about these know-it-alls and a lot more on today's edition of the Independent Outlook. Greetings, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We're across the bay from San Francisco, uh, and we try to bring you an independent perspective on the news and events of the day. Uh, I am joined, um, as is often the case, by my colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers, who is the director of the Independent Institute's uh, Center on Educational Excellence. Welcome to Dr. Bill Evers. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. And boy, do you have a nice looking bookcase behind you today. Thank you. It's very full. Yeah, you've read every single book. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to turn Some also Some of them then. are reference books, and I oh, haven't okay. read them oh, through. Okay. <laughs> okay. Have a realistic expectation there. Uh, also joined today uh, uh, on an occasional basis, as we often do, uh, with uh, William Watkins. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, Bill Watkins is a research fellow here at the Independent Institute. Uh, he is... Uh, Obviously, an attorney, if you know his background, he's written a lot of books on legal history and legal philosophy, uh, an earlier book called Judicial Monarchs, which is on my reading list, uh, Mr. Watkins. I want to read that case for restoring popular sovereignty in the United States. Also, um, some books with us, including this great one here, Crossroads for Liberty, um, very much worth reading uh, by William J. Watkins. And you also may be aware, those of you who followed his work, that he publishes frequently uh, both professionally and more popularly. On the popular side, you might see him sometimes in Forbes, USA Today, San Francisco Examiner, Washington Times, and so forth. Welcome, Bill Watkins. Good to see you as always, Graham. It really is a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking the time to join us from all the way across the country. But of course, we do have people with us on this broadcast from a lot of places. Um, we have people following us on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page, on our Twitter feed, and most importantly, uh, through thinkspot.com. Uh, we have a lot of friends around the North America, really, and maybe beyond, who follow this program on ThinkSpot, and we're so grateful to our partnership with ThinkSpot and our friends there. So call out to ThinkSpot. Uh, so um, <clears throat> there's a lot to talk about today. I mean, we could go a lot of places with uh, the news of the day today. Let, let me just begin with a couple of observations that maybe uh, uh, Bill Evers uh, may have some initial reactions to. Uh, a lot of us are aware of the fact that uh, now the vaccination process is getting going. Uh, something like 25% of Americans have been vaccinated with at least one shot. That's a lot of people. Uh, so that's encouraging. <clears throat> at the same time, now suddenly this Johnson & Johnson vaccine is suddenly being uh, put on pause uh, because there are uh, at least six young women who develop blood clotting as a result of taking the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, or so it seems, but maybe not. So CDC has recommended putting a pause on Johnson & Johnson. Um, what should we think about uh, CDC and uh, Dr. Fauci recommendations regarding pausing Johnson & Johnson vaccinations. Any thoughts on that, Evers? Yes, well, the first 
First thing is to understand that this is really a, a mandatory shutdown, even though they're talking about it as advice, because they're stopping the shipment. Okay, so uh, it's, yeah, it's I saw the word recommendation, so and I got confused. You can see, yeah, well, you know how government is; it's all euphemism. So. And of course, people with scheduled vaccinations for the Johnson & Johnson, are they're all being canceled everywhere. I so, have a friend who got canceled. Right. So there's, as people in legal theory say, there's over-inclusiveness. So even if you want to take, I think, too seriously the few problem cases, health cases, it should be confined to women of childbearing age. That seems to be the age that we're talking about here in terms of possible danger mm -hmm. and look into that. But there's no reason to suspend it for the other people. There have been no problems for anybody else. And the real problem is these are decision makers who seem to not be able to do cost-benefit analysis. Mm. Uh, you know, millions and millions of people have had this shot and there are a few people who have had a problem that may stem from this shot. And, you know, this is a new way of making shots, uh, vaccine, uh, vaccines for a sort of antiviral thing. And so, you know, we can't expect, you know, other shots have problems too. It's not, it's not like everything is perfect in a medical right. realm. Right. So I just think the main thing to see is that these government leaders that are suspending this, that are stopping it, and they may cause both this one and AstraZeneca to never be able to recover because, of course, this feeds vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxer ideology and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the thing is, they're causing deaths. I mean, this is such a rare phenomenon to have this problem with clots and so forth that they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And they're, they're saying all these people who, you know, people are still dying of this disease and they're not gonna be able to prevent that with the vaccine if the vaccine is suspended. It's not like we have too much of all different vaccines. I mean, you know, Pfizer has said they're gonna expand their production 10%, but that's not enough to take care of this. So what we have is Politicians wanting to get their hands on it, risk-averse people. They've gotten much. People have gotten much more risk-averse during this pandemic, and it's counterproductive. Well, they're averse to risk. We're all averse to risk. What's difficult right. is that there are a whole set of different risks. Yeah. And our experts, who are expert on one sort of risk, are really don't seem to be aware of, and and really can't be well versed in the other sorts of risks I, that are I less obvious. That. But still, they're making decisions for millions of people, and they're denying them medical relief that could save their lives. I mean, mm -hmm. in essence, this will kill people, what they're doing. I mean, uh, they Lots did have to let people know that there were problems with, you know, some Fine, that's yeah. fine. But I think it sounds like what you're saying, uh, Bill Evers, is that there should have been a focused and tailored response to the evidence as it emerged. I, I don't even think that they should have paused it for anybody. They should have told people about it. Yeah, they have, and, people have to and, be informed. And if, if I were a woman of childbearing age, I wouldn't take this this shot, you know? Now, the problem when you go to these sites is, you know, they, you're sort of stuck with what they have. But I think you can they can figure out a way to address it for these women so they get something that's not 
causing the problem. There are, of course, a lot of um, a lot of things to understand with respect to the risks of COVID and the vaccines. It's kind of a swirl of information for ordinary yes. people. That's for sure. Yes. I mean, I noticed um, that the director of the CDC, uh, Dr. Walensky. Uh, was referring to the situation now mounting in Michigan, where there's really quite a surge of cases there. Uh, And and she says the the answer, this is part of a transcript, where she says the answer is not necessarily to give vaccine. In fact, we know the vaccine will have a delayed response, she said. Well, that's because it takes a few weeks for you to get immune. So she says, hear the rest of this, though. She says the answer is that uh, to really, the answer to that is really, is to really close things down, to go back to our basics, where we were last spring, last summer, and to shut things down. So it seems that now poor Michigan has to be, if they followed Dr. Walensky's advice, would be totally shut down again. I can't, again, this is somebody, you know, a health official making political decisions. And I think clearly they should surge vaccines into Michigan the lockdowns have not worked again by cost-benefit analysis. They are just overwhelmingly counterproductive. I really hope that uh, people in Michigan will realize that they should be careful. Everybody in Michigan should be careful right now. Though. Yeah, you should be careful. I grant should, that. I grant that. And you should be vaccinated. Um, at, at the same time, uh, it's really perplexing. How these authorities can look at one piece of the equation, not the other. For example, uh, the health fallout from closure and school closure to children and right. others um, is already being well documented now. Not just their learning deficits, but even their health outcomes. Right. So sometimes we're doing a trade off between one aspect of public health versus another delayed aspect of public health. Uh, caution. Well, we know, and- we know, we know the academic results for the children are horrible. I mean, you can look over the years into the future about how many, so so a a deep study has been done of Los Angeles and uh, some Stanford researchers did it and they they project that, you know, huge numbers of kids are never gonna graduate. Uh, Clearly math and English are, they're falling way behind. Elementary is falling even farther behind. These schools should have been kept open. <laughs> should have been kept open. You know, countries in Europe never closed their schools. You know, they took precautions about distancing and face mask wearing and so forth. But there's been no real problem with children getting the disease or transmitting the disease. Now, teachers get it, but they get it from the other adults they mingle with. So this is the never, you know, we knew from very early on that it's old people that are in danger of getting serious mm-hmm. things from mm-hmm. this, not young people. Right. Well, you know, the the thing is clearly everybody should take really sensible, obvious precautions. Right. Um, get on with their life and get vaccinated. Um, they should get vaccinated. Another thing is the unions, the teachers' unions, have taken advantage of this. They hold the children hostage. And, uh, you know, again, Los Angeles is a prime example of this. They, mm. They're not really, you know, they're giving parents a choice, <laughs> if you call it a choice. Either keep your kids at home and learn uh, online or uh, send your kids to school part-time 
and the teacher's not even going to be in the room with the kids. The teacher is going to be virtually appearing on a screen in front of the kids mm -hmm. in the school. It's, it's ludicrous. They should be in school for in-person learning. Okay, so here's a difficulty that Bill Watkins can help us think about, which is the fact that uh, in some states, uh, notably most recently Vermont, it right. may not be as easy as it should be to get vaccinated because you have to be in the right categories. I'm looking at this piece that we just published uh, that you wrote, uh, I guess, earlier today. We published your piece, uh, Bill Watkins, on Vermont. It says Vermont unconstitutionally distributes COVID-based vaccine, COVID vaccine based on race. So you're telling us in this thing some facts that I was stunned by, uh, Bill Watkins. So if you're a Vermonter uh, and you're over 40, you can get the vaccine. And you're, wi and you're, and you're white. Well, yeah, if, if you're of any race over 40, you can get yeah, vaccine. Right. But if you're under 40, you can only get the vaccine if you belong to the proper racial category, uh, people who are African-American ancestry, indigenous, and other people of color. So indigenous meaning, meaning American Indian. I guess that's what that means. Bill Watkins, can you explain the Vermont policy and what's going on with it? No, I mean, it's a travesty, the Vermont policy. We are rationing health care based on race, and that is unconstitutional. Essentially, if you are in a specific category, Black, Indigenous, or a person of color, uh, anyone can get it. A 16-year-old can get the vaccine. A 60-year-old, a 30-year-old uh, is wide open. However, if you are white and you are below 40, you're not entitled to get it, though someone similarly situated, uh, and I use the example of a 39-year-old uh, white breadwinner, uh, four children working for his family, afraid that he will get sick. He's not eligible to get it, but you just change one factor, make him a black uh, breadwinner, four children afraid he's going to get COVID. He can get his shot today. Uh, they are rationing health care based on race. And, you know, to do this under the Constitution, you would have to show a compelling state interest. But more importantly, that the categories you're using, uh, this is narrowly tailored uh, to further the state's interest. Problem has, is, go ahead, Brian. Has this been um, contested yet in a court? No, I mean, this is a fairly recent policy, but there's no way it would stand. And unfortunately, it's a Republican governor that is pushing this policy based on anti-racism and wokeness, um, that this is somehow pursuing equity, mm -hmm. um, even though there's no scientific evidence that uh, the color of your skin matters a lick, whether you're going to get COVID or have a bad result. What uh, if, if you're you in Vermont and you're 39 years old and a breadwinner, and one of your parents is uh, of European ancestry and one is of African ancestry. How do they handle that in Vermont, you know? You know, that's a good question. It's unfortunate we're to this point where, you know, how do you measure- It sounds like we're in here. South Africa trying to decide all these weird racial categories mm -hmm. in life or death matters. By the way, uh, Bill Watkins, didn't we have early on in the COVID a Oregon situation where benefits were going to businesses that uh, had suffered from the lockdown. And so the government was going to give benefits, but give them to these businesses, aid to these businesses, but give it on a basis of race. In other words, 
If you were otherwise similarly situated white business person, you might not, you would not get this benefit. But if you were an African American business owner, you would get it. No, that's right. I mean, this is just even more pernicious. It's not just benefits. So it's not. It's, it's not just. Scene. It's not just uh, Republican governors. It's also uh, Oregon, certainly one of the most liberal and democratically uh, Democratic Party governed states in the country. Yeah, you know, what's shocking is that any governor could just think that you know this is this is legally permissible. Right. What are they policy. thinking? What are they thinking? I mean, all I can imagine is trying to put on my constitutional hat. Could it be that people in Vermont are thinking that somehow, uh, since the Fourteenth Amendment um, guarantees to everyone the equal protection of the laws? And since the COVID, uh, don't don't try and make sense of it. This right. is just a racial, a neo-racist fashion that we're. Well, I, what I'm trying now. to get at is that you know the equity thing. It has a certain basis of plausibility that you said in your article that uh, hospitalization rates were four some four times higher among non-Hispanic uh, among blacks than among non-Hispanic white people. But I think I think most scientists think that uh, this has to do with other factors. So higher levels of obesity, right. other health conditions, diabetes. So the equal protection of the laws is probably the portion of the 14th Amendment which would be used to contest this because people are being treated differently right. by race. Right. But the people in Vermont might say, oh, well, yeah, we want people to be treated equally because the 14th Amendment guarantees equal hospitalization rates among <laughs> different racial groups. Could that be their thinking? You know, it possibly could be, but as uh, Dr. Evers mentioned, they already factor in for pre-existing conditions, such mm. as if you have risk factors, right. uh, you already can get the vaccine no matter what your age is. So that's already accounted for uh, if a minority group, for example, has a higher incidence of diabetes or obesity, um, as those are um, serious risk factors with COVID, you can already get the vaccine. This is just an unabashed uh, racist policy in line with anti-racism today, mm -hmm. which means you have to see things racially. Uh, it makes no uh, good sense, but it's the fad of the day. And I mean, there's no basis in law to do this. You can't twist this even, I mean, you couldn't get, uh, you know, Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan and Roberts, we might as well throw him in there with mm -hmm. them. Um, to sign off on this. This is beyond the pale. This right. is a non I just can't Supreme imagine Court. it that's passing muster with even the liberal wing of the, of the Supreme Court. So I guess this is why you're calling it in your article a racial spoils system. No, that's right. And this, you know, what are we teaching people that we're not one country, one people, um, but we're different ethnic groups are just fighting for resources and government benefits. And the name of the game is to get your people and your allies in power and you reward them with health care or whatever else. Uh, I mean, just so, how, what a message that is. That's, it's pernicious. It's, it's so one, one, one other aspect of this in terms of thinking about this as a spoil system and political maneuvering and so forth, uh, the idea of vaccine passports. So, you know, this has several facets to it. I mean, it's 
hard to say to a store owner or somebody like that. You can't ask people for pr proof that they've been vaccinated. I think you know, they could do this. But when you talk about governments pushing this or government mandated or government issued vaccine passports, this is really uh, a tool to coerce people into getting vaccinated who might not want to. I think, you know, we, I think we would all encourage people to get vaccinated, but some people are going to hold out and, you know, it's part of freedom. They, they, but they might not be able to go to the gym or something for a while. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing is, uh, so they're trying to, of course, it is also, it encourages this scramble for uh, vaccine privileges. So you get the teachers unions and the government employees unions, and you get various racial groups and everybody's trying to push to the front of the line in order to get their vaccine passport. So this, the incentive structure in the vaccine passport is perverse and it leads to, it, it also leads to people who don't really need to get vaccinated right away because they're young and healthy uh, they are going to want to push their way into the front, uh, whereas uh, an elderly person that has various problems might get pushed aside by this scramble that's induced by the vac vaccine. So there's kind of a liberty issue. There's a liberty also for store owners, but there's this bad incentives for uh, cronyism and corruption and uh, spoil systems of a variety of sorts, but including racial spoils. Your comment is interesting, Bill, about the incentive structure. Um, yeah. And I think I've, I've seen our, our research fellow, Phil Magnus, also make this. Phil this Magnus has made this point very eloquently. Interesting point. I mean, so that the young and healthy would scram scramble and get ahead of the line of those who are more, more vulnerable, less able, right. to, less able to scramble because they'll get rewarded with this passport. Right. So, that's one level of the issue. But then, uh, Bill Watkins, maybe you can address the, the legal angle a little bit better here than, than either of us can. Surely there's something problematic about at least government-issued vaccine passports. Uh, is there anything in our constitutional uh, structure or principles which would stand in the way of government-issued vaccine passports? Sure. For a long time, you know, it's been recognized that uh, a privilege and immunity of citizens of the United States is the right to travel. Mm -hmm. um, I can see this vaccine passport issue uh, impinging that right of people being able to go uh, state to state, leave the country, uh, this, that, and the other, go to certain businesses uh, in interstate commerce. But but uh, it's also it's also affected by that Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Massachusetts case having to do with smallpox vaccinations and school children. So you're right, obviously, about the right to travel uh, has been recognized by the courts, even though we have things like Cuba travel and stuff that seem to be, you know, they seem to ignore it sometimes. But uh, point is, the government uh, tries to use public health to expand its power, and we just have to be vigilant, as with other things. One of our uh, participants who's uh, following with us today just tossed in a comment here, noting that vaccine passports look eerily similar to the Chinese social credit system. What do you think about that, Bill Watkins? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. If you look at this idea of appeasing the masters and 
uh, doing what they wish to you know, get your uh, credit on the right side of the scale so you'll have more privileges than your other citizens, be treated better, be able to get more uh, things, if you will, do mm -hmm. more things. Uh, it's absolutely the same thing, a perfect analogy. Apparently, um, somewhere down in Southern California, maybe in Orange County, I saw this article about how Orange County is going to now uh, have a test run for its own county-based COVID vaccine passport system. Uh, you know Orange County, Bill. Is that right, Bill, yes. Bill Evers? Yes, I am, I am a uh, re legal resident of Orange County, and I did see this article in the Orange County Register once a great newspaper. Uh, still pretty good at I was going to say, page. it's still pretty good comparatively. It's still pretty good to compare to others, but it's still not, it's not the old Hoyles paper of yesteryear. Anyway, uh, yes, they are, the, the Orange County Public Health Agency is experimenting with this. So the idea, of course, is that you have your smartphone. I have a flip phone, so I can't show mine. <laughs> but you have, you have a, a thing, and, it, and you would be able to go to some monitor like when you go to the airport and have your boarding pass and match to them uh, so you do that and then uh, and so they have orange county has a vendor who does their scheduling for the shots athena and they are going to try and do an experiment with, with this as a government vaccine passport you know, a lot of foreign countries um, have already, as right. China, but also European countries, uh, prior to this pandemic, have been issued national identification cards, which enable you to move around the country. I think that was the case in, in the Soviet Union, too, that the, you couldn't move about without Obviously, your, the past laws of South Africa. Yeah, the past classic. laws of South Africa and so forth. Uh, Bill Watkins, what is it in the U.S. Constitution? I hope there's something real clear. <laughs> that makes it hard for a government, bodies of government in the United States to do that kind of, you know, mass permission approval system. You know, is it the Fourth Amendment, um, privacy? Where do I, I don't see a right to travel, obviously, in the text of the Constitution. Where is this anchored uh, legally? Obstruction well, to that. No, that's a very good point. You know, here we have, you know, your papers, please. Something that uh, sounds better out of a sort of a Cold War uh, thriller with passengers going from West Germany through the Berlin Corridor into the East or, you know, Warsaw Pact countries there that uh, it seems incongruent with freedom and we've looked at it that way. However, here we are uh, beginning to embrace these sorts of ideas. Uh, again, Bushrod Washington, uh, very early in his legal career as a judge uh, in the early 1800s, uh, recognized our privilege and immunity uh, to travel freely to and from the seat of government and so forth. Um, you know, while there are, have been reasonable restrictions placed on that, uh, it's sort of part of the American uh, common law constitutional tradition. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm a textualist. I might not have found that. Uh, like I was thinking Washington of that as you spoke. Did <laughs> the judges have found it? But I mean, it, it's uh, it's established. I, I might disagree with it, but it's been established since you know 1818 at least. So um, you know that is in our constitutional uh, framework. Is that now? Is that from maybe the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, which say that neither the national government nor the state government can deprive citizens of their liberty without due process of law? 
actually, he would trace it even further to the First Amendment, your right to assemble, to associate, ah, to assemble, and right. therefore be able to travel in commerce, uh, the idea of commerce again, was not just economic activity, but it was traffic that you could mm -hmm. go back and forth among the states without any uh, restrictions upon you. What's really interesting about this conversation is if we have friends in Orange County listening to this, and if we have friends in Vermont listening to this, all you've got to do is go to independent.org, read the latest piece by William Watkins on the law in Vermont and listen to some of the things we're suggesting. Now, these are all ripe for being legally contested, even though they haven't been contested yet. You know, and what you know, these folks try to do is, I think, you know, Vermont's uh, policy is they keep moving the goalposts. They'll have yeah. a policy in place for so long and then they will change it, uh, which tries to affect uh, standing to sue and mootness. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, you know, we had this policy, you were a 39-year-old plaintiff, but now we say everyone 30 and above can get it except white people under 20. You're 35, the case is moot as to you. So yeah. it's, it's a legal game there as well. Right. Well, there are some to legal... To escape legal responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me just take you on this passport thing in a slightly different angle, um, which is more subtle, and I, I don't know how to think about it. Maybe the two of you do better than I do. Um, put it this way, we, we've mentioned a right to travel. And in the legal context, a right to travel means that government cannot restrict you from traveling. That's what, you know, a lot of these, the right to free speech means government can't restrict your speech. It doesn't mean your grandma can't tell you to shut up. It means that, it means that the government can't restrict your speech. So that's what we mean by, we mean by right to travel normally. Um, what about the issuance of vaccine passports by non-governmental entities. Uh, they wouldn't be enforceable by law or by the police, but there might be all sorts of ways in which different uh, you know, private organizations or medical bodies or others could issue a vaccine passport and, and different companies or airlines could say that they'll accept so-and-so's vaccine certif certification. You know, right. let so you so let's say Is you that, were... Uh... Let's say you were a gymnasium where people are working out and breathing heavily and they might be somewhat close to each other and it might, I mean, I think you should be able to do this, but I don't want to encourage it as a social practice or thing. One of the other things is it will encourage the continuation of lockdowns. We're starting to get out of lockdowns and we're starting to get out of being a closed down society. If you start saying, oh, well, we're going to get these passports, then people will keep the lockdown on for everybody who doesn't have the passport. Well, so, here's, here's the thing I'm getting at. If, uh, let me sorry. interrupt you briefly. Sorry. Uh, no, I, interrupt, I interrupted you. I <laughs> Well, you know, looking at, at, at Florida, for example, so Governor okay. DeSantis, I mean, I was kind of heartened when Governor DeSantis issued this order on the second day of this month of April which forbids not only the state of Florida, but also private businesses from requiring proof of vaccination for admittance. So my first reaction was, yeah. But then I thought to myself, hmm, sh should the state of Florida really have the power to prevent a private business from making a private decision about who's allowed to enter their private premises? Uh, Bill Watkins, you're a lawyer. Um, help me out here. Here's where you're going to run into a lot of state uh, public accommodation and anti-discrimination provisions, and it's going to differ state to state. I, for example, just quickly, 
Um, like, you know, we've seen, you know, recently Supreme Court cases dealing with, you know, forcing a baker to bake a particular cake uh, for homosexual wedding, this, that, and the other. State accommodation laws come into effect. What a lot of people forget is, for example, if that baker, say, refused to bake a cake for a Klansman, they wanted to have a Klan rally and they wanted KKK written on the cake, uh, the baker could tell them to go fly a kite um, because being in the clan or being white or whatever is not a protected category. However, in many state laws, sexual orientation or sexual preference, whatever you want to call it, is, and therefore it is protected. So while you could refuse one, you can't refuse the other. And some of these states have such broad classifications of who is protected and who's not. I mean, this could be a healthcare disability. If you um, uh, have chosen not to get the vaccine under some of the broadly worded statutes and would be prohibited. Uh, I mean, it's frankly a mess. And a lot of people just it don't is. realize the mess that these state public accommodation laws have created rather than let businesses um, you know, make their own decisions. We have singled out certain groups for protection and who knows really how broad some of this is until it's litigated but uh it's it's a dangerous matter these state public accommodation laws interesting so you, what you're saying is that governor desantis's order uh prohibiting private businesses um, from imposing their own private requirements you think that's problematic is that right no, based on what the state statutes are, it certainly uh, could be problematic. And remember, most of our state, our federal civil rights legislation, for example, uh, allowed, you know, the old Ollie's barbecue case from the 1960s, uh, requiring a Georgia barbecue restaurant to serve, you know, black interstate travelers. That's based on the commerce clause. That's yes. based on interstate commerce, uh, not some other principle. So um, what are you going to do when we have purely intrastate travel, perhaps within Florida? Uh, is there a federal interest that could prohibit um, mm, the governor mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. or preempt uh, the governor's action? It's really a, it's an open field, depending on state statutory law um, and you know, what they've enacted so far. And probably most of them aren't sure how broad the courts will Construe mm -hmm. their statutes and certain classifications. It's I, think, I think Bill Watkins is right to point to these accommodation laws, but I would also like to ask him about just the inherent police powers. Uh, public health has traditionally been seen as a police power of the states, protected and, by the Tenth Amendment. Uh, right, but just going back in Anglo -Amer Anglo American law to the earliest days. And uh, can't the governor say, I'm just, this is my <laughs> construction of what the public health should require? Depending on what uh, the legislature or the has done about this, yeah. Has delegated to him. Uh, right. yeah, I mean, the states definitely have the power to govern the health, welfare, and morals of the people. And typically, those, that type of legislation or regulation as long as there's a rational basis for it, the courts uh, will recognize that power. So while there's a broad open field for that, my point is just that the states have put a lot of restrictions on themselves in the public accommodation right, field, right. Mm -hmm. which is uh, you know, implicated here. 
So the question. I think the three of us could could agree though that we'd rather that they not boss private businesses and entities. It's okay if they want to say you know state. Uh, driver's license offices have to, you know, do this and that. But I think if they tell Joe's Barbecue that he can't restrict who comes in, we'd rather that they not do that. Even mm -hmm. if maybe they legally could, we maybe would rather that it be a private property-based thing. It seems to me to be a property thing. Yeah, it really. But but of course, it's so confusing for for people looking on trying to interpret all of this because on the one hand, Governor DeSantis's ruling binding private businesses looks like a blow for for freedom, right. so individuals can go freely in and out of private business. But then it looks like a blow against freedom because it constricts the freedom of the business owner. Um, and this, the same thing is true of the vaccine passports. You could say, well, it's a blow for freedom because the person who has the passport is suddenly free to do a bunch of stuff. Or you could say, and I think this can be true at the same time, that it sets up bad incentives. It will cause a political scramble for priorities. It will cause people who don't need to get vaccines urgently to get them and push others aside and so forth. So there's always trade-offs and there's always complications to these policy measures. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we, we want to recognize the private property owners' rights and we also want to discourage, I believe, yeah, there you these go. vaccine mm -hmm. passports just because they're, they're socially have too many uh, bad incentives. Yeah, so for example, what this means, just to get philosophical for a second here, uh, philosophical for a second, is that those of us who have a great esteem for individual liberty, um, it, we may not always need to ensure that state power protects individual liberty. We may actually have more, uh, sometimes more need to have a social consensus favoring individual liberty um, and rather than insisting upon uh, the posture of the state in one way or another. I think another way to look at it is watch out for a meaning of freedom that means compulsory, you know, autonomy. In other words, right. instead of autonomy, it should be based on your justified rights. Your, you know, your person shouldn't be attacked. Your property shouldn't be stolen or infringed on. That kind of liberty is a, a better system for a compossible. In other words, always everybody can fit with everybody else having all the same rights. If you have it as autonomy, in other words, you can do whatever you want. You don't have the point that many justices have made about you don't have the right to swing your fist and connect with somebody else. That's not the kind of freedom we want. That's a, an autonomous distortion of, of freedom. So Texas Governor Abbott, uh, his executive order forbade state agencies from requiring these passports. Um, I think we could I'm all, all get for by. that. I'm all for that. Yeah. Uh, so um, while we're on COVID, um, there's another thing I was going to ask uh, Bill Watkins about. Uh, the COVID crisis has, of course, produced lots of restrictions. Some of them may have been temporarily needful. I don't know. But a lot of them look pretty dubious. And apparently the U.S. Supreme Court recently agreed that California's restrictions on uh, private worship meetings were excessive. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you recently wrote something about that for us as well. 
Sure, it was a case brought to the court seeking an injunction on uh, California COVID measures where a pastor was prohibited from having a Bible study in his home that had more than three representatives of other families yes. uh, present there. Uh, the pastor argued successfully that this was a violation of the First Amendment because religious activity was not being treated uh, as well as equally with secular activity when you have uh, hardware stores, nail salons, massage parlors, et cetera, um, not subject to those restrictions. You could have four, five, six household representatives in these commercial establishments, and therefore that religious activity uh, was not being treated as well. The Supreme Court agreed and therefore applied strict scrutiny. Uh, otherwise, it's a rational basis standard, something that we talked about a little bit with uh, the police power, um, but it uh, infringes a fundamental right in this case. And the court, uh, again, reminded government that you can have these COVID restrictions if they're reasonable, but if you're going to treat religion differently than secular activity, you have to show a compelling state interest. And again, that this is narrowly tailored mm -hmm. uh, to further that. And in this case, it wasn't. As the petitioners pointed out, under California law, they could have rented out their home to a movie studio and you could have had <laughs> dozens of stagehands and actors filming a movie at the house from multiple families. And that's OK, but you can't get together and pray. Uh, again, it's a clear no-go there. And the uh, decision was a pretty hefty majority, was it not? It was a five to four decision. Oh, not a hefty majority. Um, you know, the three uh, liberals joined uh, in a dissenting opinion, arguing that this was a rational rule of general applicability. And Justice uh, Roberts just said he would, you know, not have granted uh, injunctive relief, uh, you know, probably uh, due to a mootness argument insofar as the state was changing the regulations in this particular area. Uh, but the court has held with this mootness and standing issue that um, it's still going to hear these cases because it's too easy, for example, in the New York City case for, you know, Governor Cuomo to just change a rule and say, oh, well, the rule you're challenging uh, is no longer in effect. Right. As long as they have that power to keep moving the goalposts and do it quickly, the court uh, is not going to let that be a bar to hearing the case. That's good. That, that, that's rather heartening. I mean, it, it, it really was troubling to imagine what the justification could be for treating different groups, some favored, some disfavored, so differently. And this, this characterizes so much government regulation. And of course, the trouble is anytime you get government power deployed to restrict some activity, it's always going to end up stepping on its own toes. Uh, that's just why, you know, how about as little government regulation as possible so that we don't have to have the government fall into these holes all the time on how to distinguish one group from another. Let's just stay out of it, you know? Okay, so I would encourage people who go to religious services, uh, and I, I could see a slightly crowded one at the Easter service I attended, but anyway, uh, you know, to keep some distance and think about your singing, your oh, yeah, be sensible, reciting things outside. You might want to keep some distance, and where you can't keep distance, be wearing a mask. 
And, uh, you know, also some services are held outdoors. Older people might want to do it outdoors. And uh, so, you know, be sensible. That's right. Yeah. But, okay, but the government, the government is always going to overextend this sort of thing. Okay, so let me let me go somewhere else that some of the same principles may apply here, but I'm, I'm just going to change the subject uh, now. Um, I was looking at uh, some polling results um, uh, regarding uh, the way that uh, business corporations are taking positions on big public issues. So I think we all know now uh, that Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola and Major League Baseball have all decided that Georgia needs to be punished for having adopted uh, new and more uh, higher scrutiny uh, voting requirements in their state. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought that what that would probably mean is a public reaction would mean, would suggest that maybe a majority of Democrats would, would agree that those corporations should take a stand and maybe Republicans shouldn't. But apparently, to, according to this Scott Rasmussen poll that just came out last week, um, it's, it's not true. It's, uh, he found that 59% of Americans think companies taking political positions adds to divisiveness. And over half of self-identified Democrats agreed. And then again, uh, an another poll, 66% of Americans thought corporations should not be taking political positions. And again, over half of them were Democrats. So even among self-identified Democrats and also among Republicans, People, Americans, don't think that these big corporations should be posturing in, in the public square on political issues and telling us what to think. Uh, what do you guys think about all this? Were you surprised at the position taken by Delta Airlines, for example? I think it's part, again, of this neo-racist fashion that we're going through in this country. And they're afraid that the, the clamor and pressure and people jumping up and down over this is going to hurt their business. But I think it's cr crazy because once they do this, they're on a slippery slope. They're going to end up having to take more and more political positions. Companies should only take political positions on policies, laws that directly affect their business activity. And they should, they should, you know, make some kind of united front to the extent they can that that's what they're going to do. Because otherwise, they're going to be sucked into every every kind. You know, what's your position on abortion? What's your position on, uh, you know, any any number of things? It's it's not it's not healthy for the companies, and it is divisive. And in the case of Georgia, it's based on a lie about the law. That's I especially mean, troubling. Yeah, you know that that is uh, it's it's not only this bullying of these companies and the companies bullying their employees and back and forth and round and round. There's also just a lie about what the law is in, in Georgia. It's, you know, maybe it's not exactly the law that the three of us would have picked, uh, but it's certainly similar to multiple, has components that are similar to the laws in multiple other states, including many long, predominantly democratic states. So I just think Requiring proof of identity primarily. There's many to, to states vote. that do that. Yeah. There are many states that have, you know, multiple day voting that's similar to what Georgia's proposing. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a lie about the law. 
Uh, Bill Watkins, do you know anything about the particulars of the Georgia law? I think you're next door in uh, South Carolina. You're probably following this a little better than I have. Am I right, or are you not quite as clear as I am? No, I mean, you're absolutely right on this. If you look and you compare certain provisions of the Georgia law to, for example, New York State's law, um, in many ways, the Georgia law is more liberal uh, than established law and other uh, jurisdictions that we would associate as blue states. Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole idea that this is somehow a new Jim Crow, uh, I mean, that's crazy. Uh, that is just, that is, doesn't even count as hyperbole. That's just foolish and that's reckless rhetoric there. You know, to get back to your initial point, you know, why do you see such a cross section of people uh, saying corporations should stay out of this? Is I think people are sick of every facet of life being politicized now. Yes. If you want to go to a baseball game, if you want to watch a game on TV at night when you get home from work, you want to forget about the politics, you want to forget about whatever, you know, your workaday job, uh, you want to zone out and enjoy entertainment. Uh, that's being taken away because we can't have a performance, we can't have a game that somehow does not make a statement about social justice uh, these days. And I think even the lefties are getting a little tired of that. Yeah, there may be some some reaction could set into this kind of a thing because it's it's pervasive. Uh, I think Bill Evers was going to make a comment on the point. I think Bill Watkins has said it well, and so have you, uh, Graham. So I think we could go on to something. Uh, let's not forget Afghanistan. Yeah, let, let's uh, let's <laughs> mention that. Okay, summarize the latest. It's 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 a new deadline, right, Bill? Right, Bill Evers. Oh yes. So. The United States had agreed in the Doha agreement to early May as when we were going to leave, bring our troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, so President Biden announced that it's going to be September 11th. Uh, and so he's picking that date to bring the troops out. Now, there could be, there could be military contractors. So these would be like private military operators of some sort that are in there that might be paid for by the United States government. They won't be American troops. Uh, there are a lot of contractors in there now. Now, I, I don't know, we're talking about, President talked about a lot of foreign aid going to Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, usually when we have foreign aid, we have auditors in the case of Afghanistan, we have a thing called the special inspector for reconstruction in Afghanistan. I don't see how they're going to operate. I mean, it's difficult for them to operate now. I don't see how they're going to operate. Uh, most people predict that uh, various Islamist groups, militant jihadi groups, are going to, there's much of the country that they, that they control now, but they will expand. Uh, and so, you know, the, the president essentially said, we're leaving. We've been there 20 years and we're leaving. Mm -hmm. the, uh, it's unbelievable. 20 years. How did that happen? 20 years. It's because instead of doing the main things, which would be uh, defeat al-Qaeda, uh, catch and punish Osama bin Laden, and punish the Taliban for sponsoring 
and allowing uh, Al-Qaeda to operate instead of just doing those minimum things which we accomplished a long time ago. Not you know a few years ago, but many years ago, the first few years, uh, they decided they were gonna do nation building and democratization and you know trying to make Afghanistan a lot like the United States. And that's a big, big project. And you know, just as the Russians tried to make Afghanistan like a little mini Soviet Union, and they didn't have very much luck. Uh, and they, you know, of course, they favor a much more horrible totalitarian system. Ours is more open and would have, you know, there might have been something that would be attractive to many people in Afghanistan. But anyway, it was, you know, have, it was an unfertile ground for the American project. And so it's taking all this time. Of course, uh, many people have noted that uh, if the U.S. pulls its influence down to a below a certain level, that Taliban power will grow and that that'll have bad effects. It's, it's almost certainly true. I mean, it'll have... Almost certainly true. Oh, yeah. Well, I, but, but, and the next part of the argument goes like this, that that will lead to a diminution of women's rights and women's equality in Afghanistan. Ergo, the U.S. should leave its military forces in Afghanistan for a longer time. Um, this is a pretty convoluted argument. Um, there's something to it. Obviously, if the Taliban grow in power, then Afghan women will be obviously far worse off than they have been with the U.S. power in place. Um, question is, is it the role of the U.S. military to deploy its uh, weapons on behalf of women's equality in Afghanistan? I, I think if you look over the whole world, there are lots of places where women do not have the rights they have in the United States. And that would be a big project for the U.S. military. Bill Watkins, you had a comment, I think. No, you've got to realize that the whole, you know, welfare and warfare states are twin heads uh, as you feed the military industrial complex, as you feed the nation building enterprise. Um, the central government here uh, only grows stronger and actually our liberties are more at danger and infringed. Uh, if we're to be a shining city on the hill for Afghanistan, then we should conduct our business at home well and be an example for people that they can use their own free will or to choose to follow or not. Uh, winning political liberty in their own home country is a matter of their own, uh, that's their work to do, it's not our work. To do, we have enough to do here to try to preserve what we have, much less uh, bring it to the rest of the world. I mean, if they ask my opinion, I would certainly offer it that they should construct a political and legal system in Afghanistan which vests women as full equals in their society. But they're not asking me. The issue here is is U.S. Uh, weapons on the ground and troops on the ground. Kind of stunning, really. I mean, um, uh, when a country like the United States with such a massive military uh, presence makes a fateful decision to stay a longer than necessary in a country like Afghanistan, now 20 years worth, um, maybe necessary at the beginning or at least maybe justified at the beginning, but then, you know, follow on 18 more years, say, uh, and then decides to leave, it's very difficult to extricate a great power. Uh, from a situation which it shouldn't have stayed in so long without it having uh, 
unintended or you know, secondary bad consequences. It, it, I feel for President Biden and the strategists uh, in Washington on this point because to pull U.S. power out is going to have some, you know, there's going to be some fallout from that. Uh, and some of it's going to be bad fallout. No, look at the South Vietnamese when, you know, we pulled out of Vietnam, you know, again, a place I don't think we should have ever been right. involved. Right, same thing. Um, to begin with, but, you know, there were bad consequences for uh, people that we looked at as friendly and looked at us for help uh, and that we wanted to see model uh, democratic institutions, et cetera. Um, but it was the absolute right thing to get out of Vietnam as soon as we could. We should have done it much sooner. Uh, same thing here. I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to letting refugees from Afghanistan come in. And I think the British should let tons of refugees come in from Hong Kong or the United mm -hmm. States should let. Mm -hmm. The thing is, uh, I want to say something else, though. This is based, I, I ran the schools in Iraq for about half a year. You were part of the nation building project? That's another long thing to talk about. <laughs> okay. but anyway, I go ahead, it. go ahead. So uh, I, I would say, you know, we were there occupying and we were in charge of the country. And so something was going to be done to restart the school. So I just leave it at that without, I did not try to radically transform their schools. So, and, and, the, and the White House did not want me to do that. They, they warned me beforehand. They said, you have lots of ideas, Bill. Cool it. Just get them open. Anyway, so one of the things that happens in the Arab and Middle Eastern countries, and Afghanistan is not Arab, but it's part of this larger Muslim-influenced area, it's a tribal you know, area, a lot of traditionalist values, is they look at American TV and movies, and they see women. So, so it's one thing to say, you know, women should have uh, rights to start a business. Women should be able to go out of the house without being accompanied by a male relative Educated, elected to office. They should, they, right, okay, so this is some sort of stuff. But they look at the, uh, the people in these movies and on television and they see the outfits that women are wearing and they see the sexual mores of the women and so forth. And women and men. And men, obviously. But the point is, they think if they allow women to vote, women to start businesses, women to be able to travel, it will mean that suddenly everybody will have these sexual mores, these habits of dress and so forth that they find uh, not good. And so what I told the people that I talked to about this is that's not really true. You can have uh, traditionalist mores at the same time. It doesn't. It's not some kind of inevitable slippery slope that that people will uh, have. You can have conservative sexual mores and a free society. It's not. I mean, you know, look at the three of us. Is more or less what we favor, and so I don't think uh, it's something that can't be done. And we have states in the United States that are not all like California and New York. They are, you know, people probably dress more modestly and behave more modestly. And they're still free. And there might be a bohemian subculture or something in those states. 
or those cities and localities. I'm thinking of Utah, maybe, as an example of what we are Yeah, and I, I, that would be an example, but it could be other places, too. And so it's not something that they couldn't have a, f a freer society politically, economically, culturally, socially, without still preserving certain things that they think are uh, integral to living a good and decent life. And, and so, but this is a big thing. I mean, I think Dinesh D'Souza has written a whole book on this, but I think he goes way too far. <laughs> but I think there's a kernel of a point here that this is a worry of people in these countries. No, if those of us in the United States who are uh, advocates for a high level of protection for individual freedom, if we also, by which I mean, you know, protected government keeping his hands off, or if those right. of us who favor that kind of individual liberty here, we're also making it clear that we favor the kind of healthy and moral social non-governmental practices and, and, and institutions, uh, it would be a much more attractive package. But people looking from a distance, it's really hard to see. They, they, they fear that the American solution is one whole package and it's, it's individual liberty and it's freedom for pot and freedom for drugs and freedom for sex and, and freedom valued and so all they, those things. They think, they think it's either gonna be Jane Fonda as Barbarella or Jane Bonda as you know very strong feminist. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't it have be, to be that way. It could no. be other things. Right. I mean, I think it's very, it's a very salutary effort, actually, to think carefully and precisely about the ways in which government's hands should be tied and the ways in which society should be full of healthy collaboration, that we should influence one another, uh, seek to... Society. Yeah, yes. the whole society, non-governmentally, but socially, having a healthy way of life that sustains human beings is super important as important as keeping the government out of our pockets and out of keeping them from restraining our hands. Uh, uh, government is, is the problem, but the solution is more than just getting rid of government. So um, maybe we should uh, draw this to a close in a minute. I think that a couple, you guys might have had a couple more things you were interested in commenting on. If so, I don't want to cut you short. Did, Bill Evers, did you have something else you wanted to add? I'll throw in the interesting thing that we have a lawsuit in California against the school district in San Diego, the public schools in San Diego. And uh, it's been launched by a group called Californians for Equal Rights. And it's saying, you know, stop foisting this neo-racist ideology on the school children, on the teachers. Uh, it's, you know, it's, you're a public institution. You shouldn't be f fostering uh, racial discriminatory things on school children or on teachers. And uh, we'll see where the suit goes, but uh, I think it's probably a good thing that this is uh, something that's being tried. This is fascinating. I'm looking at the the piece here that you, you gave me earlier today. Uh, it's not only Californians for Equal Rights Foundation, but also the San Diego Asian Americans for Equality and the U.S. Asian Art and Culture Association, among others, and they're all objecting to these um, mandatory training programs in the school district that are all about ra theory. racial right. equity, which is code for adopting um, the conceptual apparatus of critical race theory, which poses certain groups as villains and certain groups as oppressed heroes. And they're pointing out that this is a highly uh, charged racial a discrimination motif 
is being foisted uh, by government power in the name of equity and equality. It's a very complex situation. And their lawsuit strikes me as having considerable merit. Um, it also reminds me that in the last couple of years of the Trump administration, uh, President Trump issued a ban on the uh, use of these kind of diversity training or equity training, so-called equity training workshops in federal office uh, settings. It was very right to do so, but he got nothing but grief for it. Yeah, and President- Including, including from candidate Biden. Right, and President Biden now has rescinded the restriction which President Trump had put on these race-based uh, sensitivity programs. Um, do you think that this suit, either of you, and maybe uh, Bill Watkins as an attorney can comment, do you think that this suit, which argues uh, that the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and the California Constitution are all being violated by these racial sensitivity mandatory training sessions. Do you think that there, there, there might be some bite in that lawsuit, Bill Watkins? You know, we would hope to make progress any way we can, but you know, we also have to remember that local school districts are left, should be left, uh, to implement their own policies as they see fit to have autonomy that reflects the values of the community. The bigger problem is not a legal problem, but this wave that is rolling over the country where educated people, people otherwise with good sense, are buying into this uh, anti-racism narrative that the United States was founded on evil principles, that there's a system of institutional racism in place, that so long as there is a disparity in outcome, that is prima facie evidence of uh, racial policies uh, implemented to try to hinder minorities, et cetera. Uh, we have to just overcome that. And it's, it's not going to be in the courts. Uh, mm -hmm. We have to get okay. our heads and hearts around um, this idea that, you know, again, as a Christian, I would say that we're all made in the image of God. If you're not a Christian, then you can certainly believe that uh, we have certain natural rights. And all individuals are equal as individuals. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, we, we just have to get past this ugly part of our uh, culture right now that is making everything a racial issue. Every time a cop has an interaction with a minority, um, the media runs to put that on the television uh, as if there's some nationwide problem when, you know, for example, the most recent shooting in Minneapolis, um, nobody wants to talk about had the kid who had a warrant for criminal activity, not fought with the police, not tried to get in his car and speed away, uh, there would have been no emergency situation where officers would have deployed any force. Uh, but again, no one talks about the poor decision of mm. that individual. Um, you know, it's some sort of uh, assumed racism rather than a tragic uh, accident is what it was. I think that the injustice and tragedy of long-standing racism in America is not going to be overcome by the imposition of a new form of racism that, that continues to stigmatize people and identify them by their racial identity rather than as persons or as individuals or as citizens. I think we're, some people think that that's a solution to the old racism is the new racism. I say that no racism is the solution yeah. to racism. I think I wonder. I wonder if we have time to just briefly mention 
the leader of, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter and the multi-million dollar housing that she's buying in white neighborhoods. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. A $1.4 million home. I mean, think of the decorating expenses. Anyway, life, luckily life has its humorous side. Right, so. maybe some of these things can sort of poke people to pay attention and say, you know, it's not, these things aren't all what they're cracked up to be. Let's just be a little more, let's be a little more common sense-ish. Okay, so with that, I think uh, I should just express my gratitude uh, to William Watkins for joining us. Thank you so much, Bill Watkins. Good to see you, Graham. It's always a pleasure to have you, especially when you're wearing a bow tie. Uh, and also, let me give my thanks to Williamson Evers. Bill Evers, thank you for your insights, as always. And uh, we do invite our friends far and near who are joining us on ThinkSpot and through other platforms. Um, please turn to the Independent Institute. We are accumulating resources that you can use on our website, independent.org, that can help you navigate some of these things. I mean, we don't have all the answers to everything, but we've, we've thought through some of the stuff and done some pretty serious research. So go to independent.org. Uh, and also join us uh, about two weeks from now uh, for the next episode of the Independent Outlook. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care.